0: now, Acts chapter thirteen, verse thirteen through uh, verse forty-three. So Acts thirteen, thirteen through verse forty-three. And hear God's word. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pam. Philea and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga they came to Antioch and uh, Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, said Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel, the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David, as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to loose." Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, And those among you who fear God to you, the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him in Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, uh, for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, I will not allow your holy one to see corruption for David after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare. To, 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 So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, this word, is uh, not only available to us in the record of acts in the new testament you have preserved the sermon of paul but that it is also in its own way being preached afresh and anew this morning or this evening lord we thank you that the same message which paul was preaching so long ago is still believed and still being preached by so many today we praise you for that and we ask you that it might it might continue to do so and so bless now this word which is preached to the hearing of faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we should notice uh, and that I keep saying is that the morning series and the evening series are tracking. they're They're fitting in well together. Now, part of that is because the focus... Uh, is upon Paul, uh, and it will remain upon him uh, largely for the rest of of Acts. So that's inevitable, more or less. But even more, even more to the point is the way in which Paul is telling us that the gospel is for Jew and for Gentile, and that was the very thing that the church was grappling with in real time. And if it was for Jew and for Gentile, then it was to be preached to both, and it was to be believed by both. And both sorts of people, if they believed, were uh, were to Come into the church. What we have here is Paul's first recorded sermon. You know, I never thought to put it like that until it was time to preach this text, but Acts chapter 13 is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. We who are so familiar with his letters know far less of his preaching. We have summaries of his preaching. Uh, but even then, the picture uh, is is incomplete. Uh, but we will have uh, the delight of, of reading and considering some of his sermons in, uh, in the sermons to come. The setting was this. They found themselves in Pisidian Antioch, so it wasn't Syrian Antioch, it was Pisidian Antioch, now without John Mark. There was some form of disagreement, we don't know what it was, and... They departed. All I would say about that is, uh, and we'll see this as Acts unfolds, that sometimes these things happen. Uh, And we all know that. If we've lived the Christian life any amount of time, these things happen. Brothers part ways. I can't explain it, but it happens. And Luke doesn't try to explain it. He just tells us that it happens. But we do find that Paul and Barnabas continue journeying on and... They find themselves in a synagogue on the Sabbath where the law was being read. John Stott says the law and the prophets, I should say, and and in which a sermon was to be given. And uh, it was Paul who was called upon to preach. John Stott says, I think it's very helpful that he describes uh, it in this way. The whole atmosphere is Jewish. Reading of the Old Testament on the Jewish Sabbath in the synagogue, you get the picture. The the people there were Jews or God-fearers, along with the Jews. One of the things that's interesting to note, and this is just by way of aside, but it is fascinating, uh, and this is a point that I uh, I would love to know more about, and I hope one day to know more about. But that but that is that Christian worship, the order of worship, is largely based upon the order of worship of the synagogues. Uh, there there were great similarities uh, between there are great similarities between the two and so the the, the order of that uh, worship became the basis for the order of christian worship you would have uh, in the in the in the synagogue you would have a call to worship you would have various prayers you would have scripture lessons from the old testament law and the prophets and then you would have a sermon someone would expound or exposit the text you would have expository preaching and on this occasion, as you might find even in churches today, though I can't imagine it happening quite like this, the leaders of the church who, uh, who had authority over the pulpit might invite uh, a guest, a qualified guest to fill the pulpit. I say, I can't imagine it quite like this. This has the feeling of something that was almost spontaneous. Perhaps it wasn't, but you know, you see Jesus doing something similar as well. He would visit the synagogues and he would preach. Once the scripture had been read, he would expound the text and that would be his sermon. And so what follows is, again, Paul's first recorded sermon in a decidedly Jewish atmosphere. And the reason that I read what I read earlier from Romans chapters nine and ten, the end of nine, the beginning of ten, especially I wanted to highlight uh, verse one. Where he says, let me just read that again. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Paul is bearing his heart in Romans, but I want you to realize that his heart was for his countrymen. And so as we find him preaching to them, I want us all to see him as a man who was animated by that. A man who loved his people, a man who longed that they might know what he came to know, namely the power of the gospel to save. Another thing, so there's the man preaching, but the message, when you look at the things that he preached, uh, you say, that's Paul, that's Paul. I can see the sermon and the letters tracking together. There, this is a distinctly, even though I'll stress that his sermon is very similar to Peter's, and that was intentional. The apostles were men cut from the same cloth, and yet you can tell this is Paul, especially with the emphasis on justification by faith alone, which you didn't find in Peter's sermon, and the emphasis on the free offer of the gospel. Well, come to the sermon. What we see, and we've already seen it, but now that we've had the chance to consider several sermons, is the emergence of what scholars call the apostolic kerygma. A distinctive type of preaching that was common to the apostles, which is why you find uh, they were so similar in their preaching. Why you find that uh, there are distinct echoes of Peter's Pentecost sermon here in Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch. There were features that were common to their preaching, since they were heralds of the same message. These men didn't go about preaching their own message, but they were all commissioned by the same person to preach the same message. Not only does Paul's sermon mirror Peter's, but it also mirrors Stephen's. You'll find similarities in both cases. Now, those features of the apostolic kerygma are outlined by the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel which he preached and which they believed, he says, I delivered to you uh, verse three of uh, to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen. I'll just leave there because he begins to recount all the people who saw him. He appeared, he was put to death, he was buried, he rose again. He appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. And then those men became his witnesses. And that's the record of Acts. Those witnesses who beheld his resurrection and who preached it to others. Those are the basic features of the apostolic preaching. Well, as we look at this sermon, these are the the, the main things that we see. The first thing uh, I want to notice is the kind of sermon it was. And I've noticed this before about Peter's preaching. One of the things that uh, I find encouraging and uh, stimulating when I read the history of preachers is the kind of men they were and the kinds of sermons they preached. Not just the content or the doctrines will come to that but the, the, the pathos of their preaching and of the men themselves. Again, this brings us back to what we read in, in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 1. His hearts desire his prayer. Or if you read, just for instance, of the preaching of, of George Whitfield, you find a man who was pleading. He was pleading with his hearers to be saved. And that's what we find in Peter That's what we find in Paul. You notice uh, he is uh, downright in earnest. He is addressing his hearers directly. He is absorbed with them. The message is for them, men of Israel and you who fear God. Listen. Listen to what I say. Men and brethren, sons of the families of Abraham, to you this word of salvation has been sent. And we, we declare to you glad tidings, verse 32. Now, this is something I've said before, but I'll say it again. And it's, it's a reminder uh, to me and it's a reminder to us of what the purpose of preaching is. And the purpose of preaching is, uh, is not to gratify the desires of, of the preacher. But it's for the edification of the hearer. That's the point. Now, that's obvious, but it needs to be said. Uh, I remember Mart Lloyd-Jones reminding young preachers preaching and preaching at preachers. He says, as you sit at your desk, remember your hearer. You are not writing the sermon. You're not preparing the sermon to suit your own fancy. Always remember those whom you preach to. The apostles were excellent examples of this. The whole burden of their preaching was for the hearer. He was preaching to them. So this is a good rule of preaching. Never forget your hearers. Again, the danger of the preacher is is to suit his message to himself, to preach what interests him, not what is suited to benefit the particular group he's preaching to. Paul is preaching to Jews, and so he suits his message to them. In other cases, he'll be preaching in Athens to Gentiles. He'll suit his message a little differently. What else do we see? Well, I've said this again and again, but let me say it again. These things bear repeating these men were expositors. Their preaching was always full of the Bible. They did not come bearing uh, their own message. They came bearing the message of Scripture. So, too, was their preaching full of the gospel, always. That's the thing they were excited and eager to share. Not just the gospel, but the implications of the gospel. When when Paul would preach the gospel and then he would uh, finish his tour and then come back, What did he do? He was working out the doctrines that he preached to them. The good news about Jesus Christ for guilty sinners. But the other thing that we see for all of of Paul's desire that his hearers might be saved. Pleading with them that they might repent and believe and be saved. We also find in this man as we found in Peter In the previous passage, excuse me, not Peter, but Paul. It was Paul with the sorcerer. We find a man who could invite sinners, but he could also warn sinners. There's a solemn warning in his message to those who do not believe. The only way that I know how to describe what Paul is saying here in his sermon, the kind of sermon it was, is what Paul describes as his ministry of reconciliation in second Corinthians chapter five verse eighteen Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that is the, the apostles that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. now then. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Well that's exactly what Paul was doing. In Pisidian Antioch. He was pleading with these men. And God was pleading through him. Be reconciled to God. Or else. Be warned. You will perish in your sin. Do you realize that. Through the preaching, he was actually seeking this. He was actually seeking reconciliation with God for the hearers. He wasn't talking about it. He was achieving it. At least he was offering the achievement of it. And that's what the preaching is like. That's the possibility that's always before us. But let us come now. I've talked about the kind of message it was. And the kind of preacher Paul was in his preaching. Let us come now to... Uh, to the message itself or the outline of the sermon. At first, we could say the sermon resembles Stephen. Uh, In a much more compressed fashion, he gives the history of Israel. Now, Peter didn't do that, but Stephen did. Verses 16 through 22, the history that was recorded in the Old Testament scriptures leading up to the establishment of the throne of David. And then we'll see this in a moment, but from David, He he goes in a straight line to Christ for a very specific reason. These scriptures were believed by the Jews. The history that he gives was the history of Israel's salvation. As F.F. Bruce says, this message summarized the Old Testament kerygma, the Old Testament gospel, the Old Testament preaching. But what follows is the New Testament kerygma. And it was the connection between the two that was the stress of the apostles preaching for as God raised up David to be king of Israel. So it was to to David that God promised to establish an everlasting kingdom. And it was from David that the Messiah would spring. One from David's line was to be Israel's Messiah. That was something that every Jew knew. And that leads inevitably to the history of Jesus. So the first point was the history of Israel. The second point of this sermon was the history of Jesus. In verses 30, uh, 23 through 31, Jesus sprung from the seed of David. You remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you'll find that genealogy there. This was according to promise, a savior for Israel, Jesus. He was preached of by John. Already, again, you can see the apostolic gospel beginning to, sh- to take shape because that's the next thing Matthew tells us as well. The preaching, uh, the preaching of John in the wilderness about Jesus. Yes. And remember, uh, Paul says it was to Israel, to the sons of the family of Abraham, that he was sent. That is Jesus to you. The word of this salvation has been sent. Realize your privilege, Paul is saying. Yet though he was sent to his own, they received him not, as John says in his gospel. And, and Paul saying something similar, for they condemned him to die. He came to them as, as their Savior, and they killed him. And yet, in doing so, Paul says again, uh, the consistent note on the fulfillment of Scriptures they fulfilled the very Scriptures they denied. And so he was killed. He was crucified. So to his body laid in the tomb. You are uh, reminded or you remember here what we read earlier. First Corinthians chapter 15. But God raised him from the dead. He was killed. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And not only that, but he was witnessed by the apostles who now witness this very thing to you. Here again, the apostolic kerygma, the apostolic gospel, which is reflected in the gospels, the ministry of John the Baptist, the public ministry of Jesus Christ among the Jews to whom he was sent, his death, burial, resurrection, followed by his appearance to those who would preach this message to others. And all of this in fulfillment or according to the scriptures Which leads on to the next point, number three, the apostle says in verse 32, we declare to you glad tidings. The message of salvation in the name of Jesus, Acts chapter four, verse 12, there's salvation in no other name by which men might be saved. The name of Jesus here, the promise made to the fathers was realized as in none of them it could. Abraham could not save Israel. David could not save Israel. None of the kings could save Israel. Who could ever read the Old Testament and think that? And here Paul says what Peter earlier had said himself at Pentecost, that David's body to this day lays in the grave to this day. But God in raising Jesus up from the dead Declared him to be his only begotten son as he declared in Psalm 2 today you are my only begotten son and he refused as he says in Psalm 16 to allow his body to see corruption his holy body and this he made clear to us in raising him up and we today the apostles said are witnesses of this very thing what God promised to David through Samuel what God Witnessed about him in the second and sixteenth Psalm was realized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was the good news they preached. These men were heralds of the resurrection. We declare to you glad tidings of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For it was this more than anything that proved who Jesus was in contrast to others. It was this that gave sinners warrant to believe in him. Did God ever do anything like this in all the Bible? No, he hadn't. He had done many wonderful things. He had raised a few people only to die again. But here was something truly wonderful. Raising up his own son in the flesh. And drawing him to himself and to his right hand. Having sent him to die for our sins. Here, indeed, is good news for all, Paul declared glad tidings to be declared. And uh, and and from this, he comes to his appeal as a third point. Verses thirty eight and thirty nine, as well as forty and forty one. Let us see and let it be said that the apostolic preaching included this as well. They didn't just tell the story. But they appealed to the hearers. Their sermons contained what we call application. And let that be noted in an age that despises application. I know the cry is ever for application. But I can tell you men do not mean it. When they say it, people do not want application. What people want today are stories. Well, the apostles would preach the stories. They would preach the history. But not without the application. Not without application. An appeal to the hearer. As they told the story, they they told it as though it was for their hearers. And so it included the application. The very gospel they preached demanded this. You couldn't preach the gospel of salvation and glad tidings without actually offering it to the hearer. And so that's what he does here. Let it be known that through this man is preached to you forgiveness of sins. Oh, here is good news, Paul says, and God is offering it to you through Christ his Son in the preaching. The great thing that Israel sought in all of the ceremonies of the old covenant law, God now offers once and for all in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here is the gospel of forgiveness, full and free. Here is the ministry of reconciliation. Not only that, but here we find the Pauline emphasis emerge. But so might he adds in verse 39, we be justified by him. That is by Christ from all the things from which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification by faith and not by works. Here was a message, let us see, that was tailored for Jews. Those who sought, and this is where the earlier reading comes in as well, those who sought to be righteous by the law but never found it. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness by the law. But here is the gospel offer even to the Jew that by Christ or in Christ, everyone who believes Is justified that is declared righteous justification by faith alone in Christ alone here is good news for all even the Jew who always looked to the law of Moses for righteousness but never found it and if he thought he found it he was mistaken yet if the Jew that day or today had any sense at all of the high standard of that law he would have realized that he had not. And yet here, the very righteousness of that law was offered to him as a gift in the person of Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, God accepts us as righteous in his sight. He regards us as though we had kept the law ourselves. That's what justification means. Righteous in his sight. As though we had never sinned a single time in our lives. You see not only forgiveness though. But righteousness. He regards us as having kept the law. For we are in Christ. And he has kept the law for us. But you see no man could ever achieve this. By the law given to Moses. But here God offers it as a gift in his son. Just to finish what the apostle says. About the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. There on the cross Jesus Christ gets the credit for our sin. And pays the penalty. And we in believing not only have the pardon of sin. But we get the credit for his perfect life. You see, no one could ever achieve that. Either of these things by the law of Moses. Many had tried. Everyone had failed. But Jesus Christ achieved both fully and he offers both freely to us. Forgiveness and righteousness to the one who has faith, to everyone who has faith. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Moses, do you know there are actually those who say, this doesn't sound anything like Paul. I don't think Paul said this. I don't know how anyone could say that. That is exactly what Paul would say. Exactly. But to this, as we've seen, Paul attaches a solemn warning, knowing of the Jews' propensity to reject this message Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to, de- to declare it to you. Oh, be warned, Paul says, though God offers to you salvation today in Jesus Christ, a terrible woe is pronounced on those who reject the Gospels. Again, think of. The Apostle Paul speaking not to those whom he hated. He was not speaking out of spite. He was not saying, you know, I'm tired of you, Jews. I'm tired of you rejecting the gospel. I don't care if you go to hell. That's not what he was saying. His heart was breaking for them. He was pleading, be reconciled to God. And it was as he pled with them, those whom he loved, he warned them. You see, you don't really love a man unless you're willing to warn the man. Of his plight and of his woe. That's the man who loves. Can I speak to the fathers when I say. You must offer the gospel to your children. You must also warn them. The father who loves his children. Who have yet to believe. The father whose heart is breaking for his children. Who have yet to believe. Is the father who will say something like. Well as I've said to my children. The gospel. You've grown up with the gospel in your ears. But I have to tell you this. If you do not accept it. If you do not accept the gospel, well, then I have to warn you and I have to tell you this as well, that my conscience is clear. My hands are free of your blood. That's what Paul was saying this day. He was speaking to those whom he loved. He was pleading with them. He was warning them. He was saying, as a father says to his children, do you realize or as, a, or as a friend says to those whom he loves, a man says to his countryman who has become a Christian, do you realize there's two ways set before us? There's the way of life and there's the way of death. And as the prophet said in the Old Testament to these very Jews, why will you die? Why will you not rather turn and live? Here is the offer of the gospel. Will you not accept it? How easy it is for a man to be saved. If only he has faith in Jesus. He will be pardoned, he will be forgiven, he will be justified, he will be declared by God to be righteous both now and forever. You'd have to be a fool not to accept that message. And yet we find that so many do. What was the response? Well, the response, well, before I come to the response, I have to say something about textual criticism, which I hate. I don't like to speak of these things from the pulpit, but I was baffled by something I read here, and you might have been baffled by it as well. It says, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Well, you look at your ESVs, if you have that, you say, it says, the people. What's going on here? By the way, where did the Gentiles come into the picture? I thought this was a Jewish setting. Everything about this is confusing. Should we translate it Gentiles or could we take this word Gentile and translate it as people or is the word itself not uh, in, in the Greek? What, sh- should it not be there? You look at one Greek version, it's there, another it isn't, though it's there in, the, in uh, what I would say is the be- best text, the Textus Receptus. But even then, I would defend the Textus Receptus and say, I can't make any sense of it. Especially, as I said, because the setting is Jewish. But at the same time, let us remember there were God fearers and so they were Gentiles. But would you have called them Gentiles again? I can't be sure. For now, I simply say, I don't know. If you say, Pastor, what's going on here? You would be like me earlier in the week, calling one of my pastor friends saying, what's going on here? He gave a better answer than I give. My answer is, I don't know. But let us focus on the general picture. The general picture is what. What we need to see. The general picture is one of excitement. Paul had preached this. What I'm arguing is a very passionate sermon. A man who was pleading as Whitfield had done. And others with his hearers. They begged whoever these people were. They begged that these words might be preached to them. The next Sabbath. There was an eagerness to hear more. Paul was preaching to them and, well, when he had finished, they followed him and they said, keep preaching. Will you come back? Preach to us again. And let me just say that that's what the preaching is meant to do. That's what the preaching is capable of doing. I, I, I have to wonder at a weekend with three services. May I confess a degree of weariness at this point and may I wonder if perhaps some of you are experiencing it as well. And yet I think of these people here. I think three services hardly would have satisfied them. That's the picture we have. But let us see that the preaching always is capable of this sort of thing. Of generating this kind of excitement and this kind of interest. Yes, animosity too. We always see that. But also interest. The picture is often very positive. Let us not discount preaching as God's method to convince sinners of their need. And as God's method to expound the true meaning of the scriptures, to awaken men to their need and to cause them to be born again and having done so to make them like, as Peter describes, the newborn babe who craves and yearns for the pure milk of the word. He can't get enough. That's what these people were like. They were born again by the preaching and they suddenly found they had uh, an, an unquenchable thirsting for the word. Soon we will see the sequel of this episode, verse 34, on the next Sabbath. Well, they said on the next Sabbath, come back. And that's what we'll see next time. For now, let us see how this happens. Again, I'm reminded of what we read in other times of revival. The picture is is uh, incredibly similar. Uh, to, again, if we just think of a man like George Whitfield or others. What happens in such times is the people will give the preacher no rest. He preaches to them and they follow him home. They say, preach to us still. These things actually happen. Read the the accounts of the first great awakening, awakening. And then they wake him up early in the morning. They say, preach to us. Can you imagine something like that? It's almost impossible to believe that today. People are so eager for the sermons to finish. But look here and see a desire for preaching that is impossible to satisfy. And realize that the church has known such days beyond these days. And how the preachers went on with them, verse 43. They continued to speak to them and they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. They continued to preach with them, they followed them home. Well, they kept preaching to them. I don't know about you, but I can't read about something like that, whether here or in the accounts of the first and second great awakening and not have my heart stirred. This is something that I want to know. I want to see it in my own day. This is true revival, beloved. Let us pray that we would see it in our own day. But I would close by asking, and I think this is a fitting place to do so. Have we got a clear picture by now of the central concerns of the gospel, the main things that the apostles were preaching? What? F.F. F. Bruce calls and I've been calling the apostolic kerygma. Let me try to outline these to you as I close. And ask you if there's any, any doubt about these things. The first is the importance of the scriptures. The gospel is always stated not simply as good news to sinners. It is that but according to the scripture and fulfillment of the scripture. These are the things that God planned long ago. These are the things God said he would do. And now these are the things that God is doing. Does that not give us reason to desire to know our Old Testaments? But then there is the history recorded in those scriptures, beginning with Israel and her prophets and her kings. And all of which led up to the coming of Christ, the history of Israel culminated, culminating in the coming of Christ and then the history of his life, his death, his resurrection. That's the value of the Gospels. They tell us the history of Jesus Christ, all that he did, all that he said. Following this, by the way, we might call that those the history and the facts that are that are found in that history. The historia salutis, the history of salvation. The life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. These are uh, the historical facts by which he accomplishes salvation. But following this, we have the question as to how it is to be preached and how it is a man is saved. Let me say something that might sound controversial, but allow me to explain it. A man is not saved simply by Christ dying for him. No, he is saved when he believes. On Christ crucified. Do you understand the difference of what I'm saying? And do you understand that is why it was necessary that Christ having been raised would send others to preach and to witness to his death and to his resurrection? You see how it happens. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. Anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. Well, how are they to call unless they have someone preach and preach? And, and, uh, or how are they? How are they? Um, I don't remember at the moment the sequence. Let me just read it. How shall they call in him whom they've not believed and how shall they believe whom they've not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher? That's the sequence. They need someone to tell them the good news so that they might believe it and having believed it, they are saved. That's what we witness in the preaching of the apostles in Acts. It's not just Jesus Christ dies, men are saved. It's Jesus Christ dies and is raised and And he commissions his apostles and then they preach the gospel and then men believe that message and then they are saved. That's the application or the order of salutis. A man is saved when he believes the gospel. That's the key consideration. The illustration I like to give is that of a cup of water and a man dying of thirst. The water is able to save him, but a cup of water does not save him until he drinks it. Only then does it save him. And so the soul, as the Puritans would say, must close with Christ. They must come, again, to use now the language of Scripture, they must come to the waters and they must drink. Drink deeply the waters of salvation. Then they will be saved. And the whole purpose of the preaching is to appeal to men that they might do this. But then what happens when a man believes the gospel Well, the preaching is there to tell him, do you know what it is to be a Christian? A Christian is someone who's forgiven, full and free. He experiences the forgiveness of sins. God pardons him. He doesn't hold his sin against him. He's already held his sin against Christ on the cross. And now that he's believed on Christ for salvation, he gets all the credit for that. But he also gets all the credit for his life. He's justified. He's declared to be righteous. Are we clear about these things? Do we understand what happens when a man believes the gospel? What is true of a Christian? A Christian is someone who is justified by faith alone. And that's what Paul was saying here. He is not a man who is seeking righteousness through the law. He is a man who has sought and who has found righteousness, even the righteousness of faith in Jesus Christ. Do we think about the gospel in these terms? And can we ever hear about them enough? Especially seeing in the long history of the church, the church's propensity to drift from these essential truths. Let me ask you this Has the preaching made it clear to you? I'm failing if it hasn't. These central facts. There is the gospel in its central features. And again, I would say the purpose of preaching is to make this plain to us. So plain it cannot be mistaken. Because, you know, as the apostles discovered in their own day and as we've discovered in ours, there are many substitutes to it. And man in sin and unbelief is all too ready to believe the false gospels of the false preachers. But there is in reality uh, only one true gospel. And that is the gospel I hope that I have been preaching to you this day. And the the apostles we see were absolutely steadfast in preaching it, the one and only gospel. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that they did. I'm thankful that that's what I read in Acts, and that's what I find in their epistles, men who are utterly committed to preaching this and nothing else. Can you imagine where we would be, all of us, if they had not, if these men had wavered as to the central facts of the gospels? Oh, I read of a man like Paul and his preaching, and I thank God for him, and I thank God for Peter and all the apostles. I thank God for the way he established the church and his canon by their ministry. And I thank him that even to this day, he supplies the church with preachers, men who are, like Paul, preaching the same Exact message to us who are setting forth uh, uh, before our eyes, as he says in Galatians, and filling our ears with the sound of the gospel. And oh, that that sound would never be taken out of our ears. Amen. And let us stand together and sing to God's praise. Hymn 458. Hymn 458 as we close our worship.